We are in part two of our first Corinthians series entitled Practical Faithfulness. And this morning's message is called Remaining Faithful to God's Design. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how God directs lives. So let's talk about it practically. Here's the bottom line. We don't think that God's very good at his job. We don't think that God knows what he's doing insofar as directing our lives. And we look at it and we say, wow, you're not a great leader because here's the deal. God, I don't want to be arrogant, but there's an awful lot of things I don't think you're seeing. Uh, there is some untapped potential in me. And I don't think we're utilizing that to the fullest extent. And I don't know, Lord, whether or not you're just bypassing because you're busy right now. Or I don't know whether or not I haven't demonstrated my gifting to you. But I think we could really change some lives in a serious way if you would just go ahead and operate in my ministry over here. Now, we have a couple choices. Now, either God is actually ignorant of all these things or... You're not actually as good at this as you think you are. I would suggest that God does know what he's doing every time he orchestrates things in the most perfect, fantastic way. He is very clear on your gifting because he's the one that designed you and built you. He is very clear on what he can do with you, but he is also very clear on what he should do with you. He has all the pieces we do not. We are working off a very limited vantage point and therefore we second guess his plans and purposes. At some point we need to realize we will not understand it and we have to trust. That's where we're going to ultimately end up. I know your life is not going how you would script it. I can guarantee you, and a much of my intro and a lot of my message, I'm preaching to myself because there have been things throughout the years that I look at and go, God, here's the timing. You know what? There's a closing window on this. If we got to pull the trigger now, if we're going to get it done. And there's some things here and I could do this and we could do this and maybe we could organize this and Bridgeway could really have impact if you would only move it here and do this and do that. And he doesn't seem to be paying attention to me. At some point, we need to trust. God knows what he's doing. And I know that when you look at it, you don't think it should be that way. Now, most of the time, God's ways are far too mysterious to track. However, in the Bible, there are a few times that he has showed us what he's doing. And I want to cite some of those for you. For example, God put a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, a tree that would ultimately lead to the death of mankind. That doesn't sound like a really good plan. He put it in the middle. So if they were to transfer from one side of the garden to the other, they have to pass it. Everywhere they go, they have to pass it. Why give people opportunity every day to choose death? Doesn't sound like a great plan. However, once the tree was taken of and mankind spun into chaos, we learned some amazing lessons. Redemption, forgiveness, grace. Without the presence of sin in our lives, we would know none of those. God knows what he's doing. God let a 17-year-old boy get sold into slavery by his family named Joseph. 
Ultimately, it led to the salvation of his family during a famine, and it led to the promised Hebrew line being saved in the land of Egypt. God used a cupbearer to the king named Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem when his job had nothing to do with rebuilding anything. He happened to be in the right place at the right time. That's weird. God allowed a teenage girl to be auctioned off in a beauty pageant to a womanizing pagan king so that Esther could save her people. God called the most erratic and unreliable disciple a rock, placed on him the mantle of being the foremost pillar of the new Christian church. That was Peter. God shipwrecked Paul to minister to the island of Malta. God swallowed a prophet with a whale for three days just to get him to the point of obedience. Now let me ask you this. Is that how you would have scripted it? Are you all right with 17-year-olds being sold into slavery? Are you all right with young women being auctioned off in beauty pageants? You are not. However, God knows more than you do. God is also in control. He understands completely all the events that are about to transpire. Because what you do not know is that up ahead, there is a sharp hairpin turn to the left. You keep thinking we're going straight. How in the world can you argue with a map maker when you don't even know your destination? I would suggest that the fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is the bottom line. Let's not make it rocket science. Here you go. God knows how to do things better than we do. There, that's it. God knows how to do things better than we do. We have to trust him in that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, page 952 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the passage and what we have thrown here up on the screen is a looping reel of 20 slides of Corinth. There's the Corinthian Canal. Remember I told you that was built in 1893. However, as you look through these slides and I told you I had a chance to go through the ruins of Corinth, I didn't have a chance to bring you the photos. So what I'm going to do is allow those to go through as I'm reading the passage and beginning to teach through. So I'm entirely cool with you guys ignoring me. I would love for you, if you could feel free to just look right over at the screen, that's why they're there, that you can take a look at what is left of the ancient city of Corinth. As we go through this study, I want to bring it alive and let you know we are not telling stories, we are talking about history. History is different. So let me go ahead and read through, we're going to read through verse 10, through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll go back and tear it apart. Here we go. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. What is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called... Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong god chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of god and because of him you are in christ jesus who became to us wisdom from god righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord let's pray Heavenly Father, your word is rich and deep and powerful, but if we don't have eyes to see it, if we don't have hearts to receive it, it means nothing. Lord, your word says that it is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It was indeed you, Jesus, the alive and active word that transformed us in the first place. May you continue the process of sanctification, making us more holy, making us more like you today through this passage, in our time. So, Father, we open up our lives to you and we offer to you, all of us, with no parts held back, no door shut and locked, but everything open to your eyes. May you be praised in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about it. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, and indeed the way that it is always said, it implies sisters as well. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Right off the bat, he just did two things. He just used with the phrase brothers and sisters the concept of family, which means a couple things. One is it kind of softens the idea that he's about to rebuke them for something because he's not coming from a distant guy that doesn't know him or a distant guy that doesn't care. He says, brothers and sisters, we are equals. We are all in this. I'm struggling with it. You're struggling with it. We're all trying to do this thing. And I understand that we have stuff that we have to get over. I know we have stuff that we have to surrender and get through. I know that we have trouble in this life. I don't want to pretend like I'm coming at you and I don't get it. I do get it. So he's softening what he is about to say. And he's drawing in this idea that why are we fighting if we're family? If indeed we are family, and he'll keep bringing up the family issue over and over and over. Why are we so split in our minds? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul talks, he's talking on God's behalf. This is not an issue where Paul's going, man, I think it'd be a great idea if you did. No. 
He's saying, if I am talking on behalf of Jesus Christ, you better pay attention. This is not merely an opinion. This is not merely something that I came up with. This is straightforward what God wants for your life. Therefore, listen. I am appealing to you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. When he says something is so, it is so. It is not an opinion for you to consider. It is a fact for you to follow. So I beg you, on behalf of Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. All of you agree. What? No, that sounds lame. What do you mean all of you agree? What, on everything? No. It's the phrase that is used for two parties that are not getting along to reconcile almost in a legal sense. He's talking about those that have a schism in their relationship. It's not saying that we need to agree on everything and there's no room for diversity and that's garbage. God is very much into variety and there's all sorts of differences among us. What he's trying to say is let there be nothing that is dishonoring to the Lord, nothing that is hurtful to one another. That all of you agree and there be no division, schismata, no tears, cracks, fissures, splits, that there would not be that in the family of God among you, but that you may be united. That word means to mend together or knit together or put back together, whether it's a bone being put back in joint or a broken bone being held together to fuse or a net being torn and put together. That you may be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. We have no idea who Chloe is. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. Don't know who their people are. Are they slaves, business associates, household? No idea. For it has been reported by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. All right, so we have this brand new baby church. Christianity's new. This church is new. Nobody's older than maybe five years old in the Lord. And they're all having problems with each other. They're going, well, I don't like this guy, and I don't like her, and I don't like them. And you know what? I don't like the way they're doing things, and their Christianity's bogus, and everybody's kind of arguing. So at some point, you've got to say, what is the bigger picture? What's the problem with disunity? He keeps hammering home that unity matters. Why can't we just agree and go, listen, I don't like you. You don't like me. Let's just go hang out in other churches. Why is that not okay? Why can't we just merely say, all right, you see the world different. I don't respect you, but I don't have to deal with you. You go somewhere else. I'll go over here because that's not acceptable in scripture. Why? Because there's something about unity that's incredibly valuable and something intensely destructive about disunity. Now, I may be going a little bit far on this, and I only did a summary examination of this idea, so it's not like I know everything about what I'm talking about on this issue. But the way that it appears to me is that it seems that the Holy Spirit loves unity, thrives in that environment, and brings his favor into arenas of unity. Why? Because it seems that he's trying to encourage that behavior. It appears, and not always, but it appears that many times he will pull back and pull back his power and presence from broken, dysfunctional, disunified arenas. Why? Because it seems that he does not want to encourage that behavior. Because we all know... 
that as long as you're winning, as long as things are going well for you, you will ignore the problems. The best way to get problems addressed is for God to pull back his blessing and let you sort it out. Now, here's why I think it matters. And maybe you can track with me on this. If that is indeed the case, would it not make sense then that a schismed, disunified, divisive bridgeway is a powerless bridgeway? Why would you want to encourage that? Because if he comes in and gives us all this power, we're going to be like, well, it really doesn't matter if we get along or not. God's just all in. If that is the case, then would it not make sense that a disunified, divisive, split apart greater Sacramento area is a powerless greater Sacramento area? Here's why it matters. I have a buddy. And my buddy, another pastor in the area named Francis. He and I meet all the time. Great guy. He is absolutely bent on revival in this area. And he is convinced that before he passes from this life, revival will happen. And he has done everything in his power to research and examine and everything else. And he talks and prays and he's super fired up about revival. And here's what's intriguing. In my mind, in the back of it, I'm almost going, I don't want that to happen right now. Now that doesn't make me a very good friend. Why would I say that? Let me play it practically for you. Here's what happens if revival hits in the greater Sacramento area. Because this is what it would look like. In my mind, revival means a floodgate opens and people from the world begin to be convicted in their hearts, fall in love with Jesus, surrender their lives, and start flooding the churches, craving to know Jesus Christ and who he is. Miracles begin to erupt because the Holy Spirit is giving evidence and confirming that God is in the midst of what's going on. People begin to have lives changed and transformation. You look at that and you go, man, that sounds awesome. Why in the world would you not want that? Because here's what would really happen practically. You ready? All the church pastors and all the church leaders would go, where did it start? Did it start in that guy's church? Oh, it's their thing. Did it, did it happen in the charismatic side? Oh, it's not our thing. That's their thing. Oh, wait, no, no, no. It happened in the conservative church? Oh, okay, so now we own it. You know what? That's not them. Wait a second. They're not all flooding into that church, are they? Man, that church is full of a bunch of heretics. Now, what about that one over there? Uh, seriously? Okay, well, I guess we'll just sit and wait this one out. Why would God bless that side of the group and not this side of the group? Here's the problem. If we're not getting along, it's going to ruin everything in the revival. Because we don't see ourselves as one united front. We don't see ourselves as one church of God. We see ourselves as splinter groups. And we will destroy the revival. This church was in a place of pain when I arrived because of a schism. And God allowed me the opportunity to walk and watch healing happen. Where I watched two churches fused together that were broken. I will get into this later in the year when it starts getting hot and heavy about this issue of divisiveness. And we're going to address it because Bridgeway has made a concerted effort within the last year and a half to begin to build bridges with other churches. I meet with other pastors. We have made it our focus for unity. And we will continue to drive that way. And we all need to be on board.
for that. Amen? We move on. Verse 12. What I mean when I'm talking about all these divisions, let me tell you what I mean, Paul said, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, who are these? These are cliques. These are segments. These are crews. These are groups within the church. And basically, who would the groups be? Well, now, we're all guessing on this, but if we were to put it in its logical order, here's how it would go. You start out with, I follow Paul. Who are those guys? We can almost guarantee you they're Gentiles. Why? Because really, the Jews had the corner market on the God thing. And only recently did Jesus Christ come. He had only come maybe uh, 20, 30 years before this was all on paper, when Paul's writing this stuff down. And so the Gentiles always felt excluded until Paul shows up. Then Paul starts talking about, no, you've been grafted in. Come on, guys. And he became their big dog. Who's Apollos? The second pastor of Corinth, probably gone on and done more missionary journeys at this time. But he is Mr. Speaker. The Greeks look at him and they just bow down because this guy knows how to talk. I mean, he's eloquent. He can spin any message and talk about anything. And he can talk about how this relates to this. And this is the background. And this is it. I mean, he is Mr. Order Extraordinaire. And all the intellectuals think that he's the man. It's, he's got the meat. I mean, everybody else is milk in this area. And he's, he's the real man. And if you really want some serious teaching, you've got to go with this guy, right? Who's Cephas? The Aramaic version of Peter. Simon Peter, you remember him. He is the head of the church in Jerusalem. He is in Jew Central. They're his crew. All the Jews are like, that's my man right there. You want to do Christianity legit? You better go it the Jewish way because Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. So here's what you need to do. You need to get all those laws nailed down. Then you can add on the Jesus piece. But you got to go through and make sure that you are honoring Yahweh in every way, shape, and form. You know what? Let's do the Shema right now. You know what? I organized three bar mitzvahs for myself. So let's go into this, right? And it's all the Jews are fired up and they're excited and, and they're like, Peter's the man. He's not all this, oh, liberty in Jesus guy. I mean, he's just straight on. You want to talk about hardcore, talk about Peter. Now, who's this crew about I follow Christ? Now, this can be translated two different ways. It can either be where Paul's saying, but I follow Christ, which is not likely. It is likely that another group is saying, I follow Christ. And I can guarantee you who this crew is because every church has one, Right. Here's this click. So you follow Apollos and everything? Guess what? I follow Jesus. My Jesus is bigger than your Apollos. My big dog died for the sins of the world. What do you got? Right? They're the, no, 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 I'm legit. I'm like the straightforward, the real place. You know what I mean? I'm just all about the Bible. And, you know, I don't follow any man. I don't follow a man. I just follow Jesus. And, you know, come on. We all know those folks, right? The holier than thou folks. Right? All right, so you have all these split apart. Here's the thing. Besides the Jesus part, you have the three biggest preachers of the day. Apollos, Paul, Peter. If we're talking about modern day, they have the biggest, best-rated television shows out. They are the biggest teachers on the radio. They are known everywhere. In Christendom, they are the superstars. So everybody links to one of them. Now, is that still occurring? You better believe it. See, in my day growing up, we all played the same game. You Chuck Swindoll guy, you MacArthur guy, who are you? 
right? Because if you're a Chuck Swindoll guy, you ride motorcycles and you laugh, right? But you're warm and fuzzy. You know Jesus. If you're a MacArthur guy, you're actually right. And you know what? I mean, that, I mean, he's got it nailed down. If anybody knows the Bible, you know, it's, it's got to be John MacArthur. You're not on the other crew, are you? Right? And then there's the Hank Hanegraaff team, right? And we all know the Bible answer man guys. And then you go, well, what about that guy on the radio? And that guy, and that guy, and that guy. Well, I listen to N.T. Wright. He's always right. It's in his name. And then you talk, you know, I mean, there's all these different teachers. Well, I'm a Rob Bell guy. Well, I'm, I'm a Mars Hill guy. And I'm a, right? And it goes on and on and on. Everybody, now I understand why we do it. We do it because it's faster, it's easier, but so is racism and stereotyping. I understand it's easier, it's not right. You don't align with one human being and say you're all about that person and you're going to create divisions between everyone that doesn't agree with you. It's not the way that the kingdom of God is to be run. But that's exactly what they were doing. So Paul argues, what, is Christ divided? Is that the deal? That Jesus Christ is cool with ripping his body in pieces and having an arm over there and a leg over there and that they should never join? That's not acceptable. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What, are you all about me? Did you put all your trust in me? Did I die for the sins of the world? Clearly not. Man, I'm a good teacher. So what? That's got nothing to do with ultimate eternity. I can't save you. Why are you aligning under my banner? Shouldn't you align under the banner of Jesus Christ? Because that's what line I'm in, he says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus, remember the first synagogue ruler in Corinth, and Gaius, the host of the church, the guy who Paul stayed with. He said, I baptize you too. Now, the reason why he's mentioning this is because at that day, imagine that you're baptized by the big dog. Literally, your baptism certificate says Paul the Apostle on the bottom. You're like, check it out. And it's all framed on your wall, right? And you're like, how legit is my baptism? Yeah, yeah, look at it. Look at it, right? He's like, you know what? This is ridiculous. Who cares who's lowering you down? That's not the point. It's about why you were lowered down. It's about why it ties into all this amazing stuff that Jesus has done. It's not about the guy who happened to touch you when you went underwater. That's not it. He's like, I'm so thankful that we don't play this game, that I didn't baptize anybody but Christmas and Gaius, so that no one would say they were baptized into my identity. And then the next line is hilarious. All right, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even know whether I baptized anybody else. See, in modern day, he would just say to his, remember Sosthenes as his secretary? He'd be like, delete that last part. Because right when he writes that down, Sosthenes is like, yep, Crispus, Gaius, no one. Hey, Paul, do you remember Stephanus? Shoot. All right, add that part in there. The household of Stephanus. Hey, did you baptize Frank? Because I remember, you know what? I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, do you remember that Jesus didn't baptize either? He had his team do it. That was not what Jesus was about. That was his primary thing. He was there preaching and talking about different things. And then when they went to get baptized, the rest of the team did that. 
He's not downplaying baptism in any way, shape, or form. He's saying, what is my calling? There are a million great things to do. There's a million amazing things about the kingdom. There's a million ways to do ministry. There's a million ministries to do. What am I called to do? See, I believe that God not only tends to call us into ministry in certain ways, he also gives us niches of ministry that we excel at. So sure enough, he said, listen, baptism is awesome, and my team is amazing at it. And the way that they are so kind and so amazing to hold people's hearts when they lower them underwater, the way that they come up and embrace them, the way that they lead them and disciple them afterwards is beautiful. It's just not my job. I was called to preach the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, I mean, it's eighty fifty four, right? So he's like... 20 years ago, Jesus Christ came, you know, for us, it's 2000 years ago, right? God became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation of God in man, born of a virgin birth through Mary, lived a perfect life for 30 years, went public, revealed himself to be the Messiah, taught everyone that the way to eternal life is in him alone, that you would trust him to replace his life, his perfect life for your broken life, that as you surrender to him, he would cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that he would make you right in the eyes of God, that he would cleanse you from the garbage of your past, give you a brand new life, ignite in you eternal life. And then after a three-year ministry, he was led to the cross, died a humiliating, shameful death, died for the sins of the world was buried on the third day, rose again, revealed himself as obviously alive and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is uh, interceding for us even now. That's the gospel. He said, that's my message. He said, now I don't do it with eloquent words lest the power of the cross be devoid of that power. What's he saying? He's not saying I'm not a good preacher. He's not saying I just got to go basic, can't put any frills on it. That's not at all what he's saying. If you don't know the context of this letter, you're going to miss this. Because here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is Paul is a really good preacher. Now, is he like Apollos? No. Is he good? Yes. If you remember, according to the Acts passage, he was just in Athens where all the philosophers were. And he literally brings out one of the coolest, most amazing, creative messages that I've ever read. What he does, he walks through Athens and sees all these monuments to these gods, looks around, finds one that says to an unknown god. He goes, that's the one I'm talking about. Now, how brilliant is that? That's pretty eloquent. That's pretty neat. Hey, out of all your gods that you think you're honoring, I want to talk about the one that you haven't even touched yet. I want the all-encompassing, all-universal, all-powerful, all-amazing God, that one right there. You don't even know him. Let me tell you about him right now. That's a brilliant way to preach. It was not that Paul was not a good preacher. It was not that he was not eloquent in that way. But remember the context. The context is this. He is in a Greek and Roman worldview in the ancient world at A.D. 54. What that means is he is in Greece, the central hub of all that is intellectual and fancy. Words are everything. The biggest superstars, and I was reading through one commentary that was quoting ancient historians that said even all the theaters and arenas emptied out when they heard that a speaker was coming to town. 
the speakers were the biggest, wealthiest, best paid, most amazing, most famous guys in their entire area. Guys that could spin words. They didn't even care about the context. They didn't care about the content. All they cared about was, can you make an argument and can you argue anything in a brilliant way? And can you link it together in a really fancy fashion? Paul goes, I don't care about any of that garbage. I don't know how clear I can make my story. Here's my story. Your house is on fire. Get out. You want to hear the fancier version? Your house is on fire. Get out. That's it. I don't got anything else for you. I'm not going to play games with you because content matters to me. And I'm talking about life and death. So no, I'm not going to spin my words. I'm not going to try to go all crazy and entertainment based on you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Here you go. You're dying. You're going to spend your eternity in hell. Unless Jesus Christ saves you from yourself. Your entrance to heaven has nothing to do with you being good because your good is garbage. It has everything to do with switching with Jesus because he's the only one that's perfect. And you need him right now. That's what he's talking about, right? God, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know how we know that that's true? Talk to your neighbors who are unbelievers about Jesus and watch their eyes glaze over. And then we're all here. Seriously? Did you not stay up late last night? Why are you here? We jam-pack a room on a Sunday morning. Most of you have a work schedule that you only have two days off. Why in the world would you get up extra early to come to a place to talk about a book, to talk about a living Jesus that no one can see? It's insane if you don't get it, if you don't know it. And here we are jam-packing it as if we're all excited about the revelation of what is really going on in reality. And the rest of the world thinks we're a bunch of idiots. But to us, it's everything. To us, we live and breathe this stuff. And we look and we want more of it and more of it and more of it. We can't can't get out of it. My whole job is based on it. My whole life is based on it. I'm like, oh, I found something new. I found something new. I mean, talk about a nerd. (laughs) Oh, do you see this? This is amazing right here, right? You know, if you parse this word, right? I mean, it's just kind of stupid but to me it's life it's it's like what all reality is based on right is that jesus is alive and that this life isn't it that we got more to it and that everything the majority is on the other side for it is written isaiah 29 14 i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart isaiah 33 18 where is the one who is wise Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where are all your fancy guys that know everything? How are they doing? How are they living? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now let me ask you this. Let's be practical about it. There are brilliant people that are not Christians, right? I mean, there's scientists and, and astrophysicists and, and, and people that are so geared towards figuring it all out. I mean, we look at some of the most brilliant people in the entire world, Stephen Hawking, guys like that, and God is absent from their life. And we look at them and we read their papers and go, man, maybe they're right because they're just so intelligent. I ask you this. What difference is it making in their lives? Take away their papers. How do they live every day? Is there joy? Is there love? Is there grace? There's none of that. 
If you take away the papers, what kind of life do you have? In all their brilliance, what have they arrived at? Are they thriving more than everyone else? Has their wisdom, their brilliance, touched their soul or spirit? No. They're empty. And that there's a bunch of ignorant, uneducated people in this world that love Jesus and have all the joy of the world in their soul. And they live happy and joyful and content and future-focused. For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through their wisdom, they never could find him, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the simplicity of the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews. The cross is a major problem for the Jews. Not only ruined expectations, my Messiah is not a failure, my Messiah is not a loser. Seriously, you killed him? If man can kill the Messiah, he's not the Messiah. Not only that, you want me to put a nail in that coffin, you ready to go? Here's it. My law, Old Testament, says anyone that hangs on a tree is cursed. Your Messiah hung on a tree. It even says in the law, he's cursed. He's not the Messiah. I can't get this cross thing. No, when the Messiah arrives, he rolls into town, we take over, and we are brought back to where we need to be. We are victorious. It is a king. It is not a suffering servant. Come on, seriously. No, the cross thing, I'm out. The the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are looking at it going, oh yeah, God became flesh. Sure he did. You can shove God into a little tiny container. You know what? He doesn't even like this. If there's a God out there, and I'll tell you, there probably is a big force out there. He wants nothing to do with you. We're a bunch of garbage God's not coming here. God's not going to touch this. It's out there somewhere, but it's certainly not with us. That's ridiculous. Jesus Christ is God, and then he dies on a cross, whatever. That was their view. But to those who are called, to those who are embraced into the family of God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let me bring up a point real quick. Have you noticed that God makes it difficult to come to him have you noticed that so like for example he gives this parable he says broad is the way to destruction and narrow is the way to life why if you're trying to get everybody saved why not make it broad is the way to destruction and broad is the way to life i mean hey let's just give equal opportunity right i mean if you're gonna die or live let's just make it easy why you gotta make it all narrow well i'll tell you that Maybe it's even for the possibility that say you can go with all your crew and all your friends and everybody and you can go to hell all together. But you want to go to heaven, I want you to talk to me personally. Get in single file. I'm not playing this game. We're not doing the, my parents are saved, my friends are saved, that saves me. My spouse is saved, so I'm cool. No, you're not. Come here, one by one. You come here and talk to me. Do you know me? I'm not playing any other game. Let's go single file. You walk with me. You talk with me because this is a personal relationship. This is not about a big, massive grouping. This is about an individual heart. Do you love me or not? If you remember, he said it's easier for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. You remember that? 
Now, we would go, is he really trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle? Oh, no, no, no. There's an ancient gateway. This is what I was raised with. There's an ancient gateway called the eye of the needle, and then the camel couldn't go through it. He had to take off his stuff, and he had to crawl through, right? Nobody has ever found that. It's probably completely bogus, but it's a cool story, right? I don't care what it means. Here's what it means. It's hard. Why is it hard? Because you can't come to Jesus and keep being just yourself. There is a surrender. There is a removal. There is a change. There is a what? Giving up. You don't get to come in arrogant. You don't get to come in the way you want to come in. You come in and you are changed and transformed. And you come in humble. There is no way you're getting in arrogant. If your head is held high, you're going to miss Jesus because he's down here. And then, sure enough, Jesus comes in and he starts telling the gospel. And it says, and he taught the crowds in what? Parables. The most confusing, misleading stories ever. I get it. There's a field. The heck does a field mean? And then there's a guy and he's sowing this and he's doing this. And then one guy is trying to hide his talent. And you're like, I don't even know what we're talking about. Why can't you just tell me obvious? Why can't you just tell me a nice little story that I know where we're going? Because the arrogant stand aloof and they want to pick it up and they want to do a little add-on. Give me a little wisdom. All right, I'll put that in my pocket and they walk away. But if you stand on the aloof on the edge and you listen to the story, you go, I don't even get that. What's he doing? What's he talking about? Well, you got to put in the effort to pay I don't care. And you walk away. Jesus said, you want to know me? Get closer. And his disciples had to go, parable of the servants, yeah! Jesus, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you. Everything. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Because you had to come to him again and again. You had to find out what was going on. You had to get closer. They're all methods of filtering. Why are you here? Why do you want to know him? What's your reason? It says... For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's hyperbole, right? God isn't weak. God isn't any of those things. For consider your calling, brothers, he refers to the church. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You guys, seriously, we're common people. And he would look out. We're all blue collar. I mean, a few of us had some fancy stuff. Not a lot of us had degrees on the walls. And Paul knows he had the best degrees from the best universities. He's like, listen, the world was not looking at us going, man, those are the most brilliant people in the world. We're just regular folks. But we know Jesus. For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that the world would say are not. Nobody cares about that. To bring to nothing things that they think are. So that no human being, no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. There are a lot of us in this church that have low self-esteem, low issues of our view of ourselves, insecurity, whatever you want to call it, that say, I'm not good enough for God to use. If you study scripture, it's actually quite the opposite. And here's what it means. I think that a better question is, am I too fancy for God to use? Here's why. You will notice that God tends to call out weakness and utilize them why because then everyone knows it's not the person it's god the more gifts and talents and abilities you have the less glory god is going to get it is a wonder why he would ever give any of us any of those here's why they're impressed with you the more gifts and talents you have the praise goes and hits your chest and never gets through to jesus who's standing on the other side 
So my question for you is, are you too gifted? Do you have too many abilities? Is everyone impressed with you and they can't see Jesus? Usually when God calls somebody highly gifted, he forces them to do it in an area they never would have expected. Hmm. And because of God, from him, you are in Christ Jesus. It wasn't your idea. It was God's idea. Who Jesus Christ became to us in incarnation, lifestyle, teaching wisdom from God. Truth that we could and should follow. Righteousness. We have been justified, made right in our relationship with God because of Jesus. We have been sanctified, which is that process of being made holy, set apart for God's special service. And he is our redemption, saying, being set free by Jesus from our sin bondage. Listen to this quote by Warren Wearsby. This is totally cool. He said, by this phrase, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we shall be saved from the presence of sin. That's an all-complete, I got you covered. So that, as it is written in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Have you ever read that Jeremiah piece? I read that, and I thought it was even better. Check this out. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Here's the key. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord. You want to brag about something? Brag about the fact that you are connected to the Almighty. As far as your abilities and gifting, it might just get in the way. All right. So let me close with this. Then I'm going to pray and give you the closing challenge. We have so many cute ideas on how we need to help God. We have so many ideas that God should be utilizing if he really wants to get the job done. But he's wise enough to not. Let me give you a quick story. So the other day, uh, my daughter sent out invitations. My little one sent out invitations into our household. Had them all on written paper, and she dropped off invitations to her sister, to me, and to her mom. And we were going to have comedy night. Comedy night was in the playroom, and she actually had us all call for reservations. So... She had the home phone and gave us all cell phones, and we had to call in and make our reservations for the night. And so we all come in, and she has a little podium set up and a joke book held open that she's going to read for everybody. So she comes in, and she goes, come on in, come on in. we got a great night for you, right? I was like, who is this girl, right? She's seven years old. So she's going, come on in, have a seat, have a seat. All right, we got some jokes for you tonight, right? So she starts going into this thing. And she's reading these jokes off, right? And she's like, that ties in here and blah, blah, blah. And I have no idea what that one meant, but I think it's funny, right? She didn't even know what she was doing, right? So we're going through and she starts involving her sister. And accidentally, along the way, her sister revealed that she's not funny. (laughs) And she was crushed. And she's like... Oh, she started to cry, and and uh, so my wife goes and encourages her, and and this is my daughter, right? She goes from devastated to going, I have an idea. We can invite the entire neighborhood for comedy night. <laughs> and my wife's like, yes, yes, we will. I'm like, no, no, we won't. That's a terrible idea. She's just all over the map. It was like either it's never going to work or it's totally going to work. And we got to, you know. Okay, this is us in ministry. 
we have all these great brilliant plans on what's going to totally work. And man, if it only went like this, that would be so great. Listen, our Heavenly Father knows what's best. And He knows what He's doing. And He knows how to organize it. 